This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some of the country's biggest legal dilemmas have erupted in Colorado. Foremost among them, the state's legalization of marijuana, in defiance, of course, of the federal government. That has made for an intense six years, if you ask John Walsh. He stepped down just yesterday as U.S. attorney in Colorado, the top federal prosecutor in the state. Terrorism and gun violence have also loomed large during his tenure. And John, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. On marijuana, was there some guiding principle you followed to decide whether to prosecute a case or to leave it be? Well, from the beginning, our focus really was on where there was a federal interest. In other words, we always wanted to see where we thought there was harm being done to the public, public health, public safety, with an idea that Okay, the federal government doesn't prosecute every case that's out there. The vast majority of criminal prosecutions take place at the state and local level. We try to hit constantly big drug trafficking organizations, things that are really uh, more broadly and in an interstate way affecting public health and public safety. And those were some of the core guiding principles that we used. And so you would ask yourself, where is there public harm? And most often, what were those cases? Trafficking? Were there other examples? Well, in 2013, the department came down with guidance to us as to how all federal prosecutors across the country should be addressing the issue of how to handle marijuana enforcement when a state has legalized uh, either recreation or medical, uh, recreational or medical marijuana under state law. Right. I remember and when that memo came down, I think from Eric Holder at the U.S. Attorney General's office. It was from D.C. and really focused us in on eight different areas that included things like violence and you know drug cartel involvement, interstate transportation from states that had legalized uh, marijuana to states that still had it completely illegal. So those were those were some of the things we focused on. Never, never has it been a major federal uh, priority for prosecution to go after sort of the casual user of marijuana. That was true before legalization. We didn't bring possession of marijuana cases. Where do you see current harms? Well, right now in Colorado, there's a there's a wave, and it's a disturbing wave of people coming in from out of state who are set or leasing or buying houses, just regular residential homes, and setting up uh, sort of illegal or pirate marijuana grows, maybe 100, 200, 300 plants. Now, that process, mind you, becomes very dangerous because they to do that for the lights and for all of the equipment that goes around a hydroponic grow, you have to pump in a lot of uh, electricity. And guess what? A lot of these folks are not following electrical codes, and so we've had some fires. More disturbingly, though, what happens with much of that marijuana in those uh, what I'll call pirate grows is it gets shipped out of state. It's not being uh, addressed. It's not under the state legalization system any more than it is under federal law. Hmm. And so homes, you're saying, are being transformed in, essentially into places of industry. Uh, essentially, it, into sort of small hydroponic farms. But uh, it's it's a very substantial problem along the Front Range in particular. It, there are probably over a thousand of these houses. Uh, and uh, I think both state and local law enforcement and federal law enforcement is really devoting a lot of attention to it now as a team. Would you say that there's a crackdown underway? 
you know, I don't know if I would call it a crackdown. I think there's a this has happened in the last eighteen months to two years. Okay. Um, so there is a I think a growing awareness and a growing focus uh, on that subject. I, I will say that one of the great things that has developed over the last few years and something that we strived very hard to accomplish was bringing federal and state law enforcement together to address those areas where marijuana activities were in fact harming the public in some way. You say that these grows are in violation of state law, and I, I don't imagine that you um, you know, are wanting to insert yourself into state lawmaking, but do you think that there are regulations or laws that the state should consider that could get those under wraps? Well, I, I give a lot of credit to the uh, the state uh, administration and the governor's office and his folks, pub- the public safety uh, department and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, because they're aware of this problem now. And they've been looking very hard at how you can address this effectively. One of the big issues is the uh, recommendations from doctors to patients for 99 plants that they can grow 99 plants for their own personal use for medical reasons. If you see these plants, they're like small trees. The idea that a single patient would need 99 plants uh, is is really a little hard to uh, get your arms around. So I know that the uh, the governor's office as well as other folks in state government are working very hard to figure out how can we get a handle on that? How can we make sure that legitimate state law medical marijuana uh, processes are not circumvented. And I'll say that the governor was in opposition to recreational marijuana before it was legalized and um, has since called this an experiment, uh, one that I think has gone a little bit better than he than he forecast. You know, just yesterday, the federal government reaffirmed its stance that marijuana should be a Schedule One drug. Uh, despite the fact that half the states in the District of Columbia have legalized some form of marijuana. Point blank, should the federal government bow to reality and uh, legalize marijuana? Well, remember what the, the scheduling process is about. The scheduling process is about whether or not there is an accepted medical use for marijuana. And in yeah. this case, smoked marijuana, right? I mean, we're, there are some narrow... Uh, areas where there is an acceptable uh, medical use for derivatives of marijuana. But for smoked marijuana, uh, no, there really isn't a medical evidence uh, that is accepted broadly. Because what, 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 what flows out of Schedule 1 is that the FDA says, no, this is not pure medicine. That's right. Yeah. And it, in other words, it, it doesn't have a medical purpose. Therefore, a doctor can't prescribe it. Uh, and what is interesting, though, is that the DEA is also moving towards making it easier for medical research to be done on marijuana. And I think those those two decisions really go hand in hand, which is you said right now we don't have that medical evidence that would permit this to be rescheduled under the law. But we understand that there are people who believe that it does. And we're going to try to facilitate legitimate medical research to determine if those are in fact appropriate medical purposes. But let me ask that question separate of the medical concern. Do you think marijuana should should be legalized? Well, I I was not in favor of it. I'll just put that out there. Like the governor, I, I thought it was not a good idea to uh, legalize recreational marijuana. Um, however, this is a democracy, and the people of the state voted by a pretty substantial margin to uh, to uh, legalize it. Uh, and for that reason, the you know my approach has been because my job is to enforce the law, not to make it, or has been. Um, 
has always been, okay, fine. If that's what the voters want to do, let's make sure this doesn't cause unintended consequences and harms to public safety and to public health. Bottom line is this. If we could do this all over again and take it back, I probably would. But having mm. said that, having said that, I don't think it's been a disaster. It's uh, we are. It's as the governor said. It's an experiment, and uh, we're moving forward with it. And I think Colorado is on the forefront of making this work. It hasn't been a disaster. That's as generous as you'll be on how it's gone. Well, I I think it's interesting. It's a because it's a work in process. The, there are parts that have worked very well. I give a lot of credit to the state of Colorado in the way it has regulated recre- recreational marijuana. But because we have both a medical marijuana system and a recreational system... And the medical system being taxed much less... There is sort of a, a gaming of those two different systems. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we have with us John Walsh, who just yesterday stepped down as U.S. attorney in Colorado, the top federal prosecutor in the state. It's been an intense six years for him. And let's move on to some other topics, John. Uh, One that's got a lot of attention lately, of course, is relations between police and communities, including police shootings of citizens and then shootings of police officers in Dallas, Baton Rouge. What do you think has to change in this relationship? Well, I think it's nothing that can happen overnight. There has to be Uh, a really concerted effort by law enforcement to get out into the community and to build trust in the community and to approach uh, enforcement of the laws in a way that really takes into account community concerns. You think there's a lack of that? No, not necessarily. I I think it depends. There there is certainly a perception in some communities that, especially communities that are affected disproportionately by uh, violent crime and other types of crime that and minority communities, that the police you know, sometimes or often don't take into account their needs. But I don't know that that's – I think that's a reflection of a lot of history, a lot of really unfortunate history over decades and even centuries. You know, the president commissioned a, uh, a, a report on 21st century policing and it, it had in it a whole bunch of specific ways to approach winning the trust of all communities as you go out and enforce the law. What was an example that caught your eye? Well, there are a number of things. One, one, I think, what the report in, as a whole really focuses on is the importance of engaging the community and, and engaging individual officers with the community on a more personalized level. You know, I've talked to a lot of people in communities that are and many minority communities that have been they get hit hard with crime every day. Those folks want effective law enforcement in their community. They know that the the quality of life in their community has been uh, reduced. At the same time, they don't want to see young people in their in in their part of town targeted in a way they think is unfair or may even in their eyes be uh, based on race. So it's it's a complicated thing. The attorney general has gone on two separate tours around the country, going to communities where there is this this question of trust and really trying to reach out. And I think she's done a, a spectacular job of taking the steps that we need to to begin on a road that will take us a while to, to end. Mm. So I'm just trying to, you know, um, figure out what that means. I mean, is is that a policy change or is that a, an environment change, an ambiance change on police forces, you know? I think it's both. Uh, I certainly think that uh, you know, 
law enforcement training that addresses implicit bias uh, in uh, in the way law enforcement work is uh, is done or there's a risk of implicit bias is important. At the same time, there are some policy changes that need to be made. Uh, and in terms of how you go about addressing when you pull people over, what constitutes a sufficient uh, basis to stop. Having said that, I, I think it's really important to say something that that we in this day and age and after the terrible things that have happened this summer in Dallas and elsewhere, police officers and law enforcement agents of all kinds have a, a legitimate safety concern that they take with them every day they walk out of a roll call and get on the street. They're, they have a right, as we all know, to come home at night as well to their families. Yeah, I think and that's, argues with that. No, no, I don't think so either. Yeah. Having said that, the many of the debates, many of the discussions, I think we have to take into account that there are legitimate interests on both sides, and it's a balance. The now former U.S. attorney in Colorado, John Walsh, joins us reflecting on his six years in that intense job. You coordinated the federal investigation of the Aurora shootings and several months later testified to Congress, speaking on behalf of the Department of Justice to support limits on so-called assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. Here's just a bit of your testimony. As the United States Attorney for Colorado, I go to bed every night in these months since July 2012, wondering whether I will be awakened by another pre-dawn call like the one I received on July 20th of last year, which notified me of the horrifying mass shooting in Aurora or whether I will receive calls like those I've since received from other U.S. attorneys around the country confronting the same sort of horror in their own home state. Hmm. You have resigned. You may go into private practice. Do you think you'll campaign for those gun controls? Let me say that there's already a magazine limit in Colorado. Well, I I think it's important. um, Colorado has done a number of things that are that are crucially important that, that I support on a national level. One is limiting magazine sizes. You know, the, it was a 90 uh, 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 cartridge uh, magazine that got used in the Aurora theater shooting and, the, and Holmes got off over 60 shots. Uh, why do we need a magazine that large? Uh, in truth. And so when Colorado limited magazine size to 15, I think that was a big step in the right direction. Though still controversial. Well, it was certainly controversial. On the other hand, the fact that a shooter has to reload after a certain number of shots makes a huge difference. In the Gabby Gifford case, you'll recall in Tucson when Congresswoman Giffords was shot, that shooter was stopped because he had to stop to reload. It's crucially, crucially important that we not give Uh, unnecessary uh, strength to people who might use weapons like that in a terrible way. At the same time, I think universal background checks are crucial on a national level. You know, the the sky hasn't fallen by magazine limits and universal background checks here in Colorado. I strongly support that on a national level. The assault weapon ban is harder because there are technical issues related to how you define an assault weapon ban that makes it difficult to implement, as we found in the 1990s. Having said that, I think it's a legitimate question as to why some weapons, some truly military-derived uh, weapons need to be uh, available easily and broadly in a way that's not all that much different than any other weapon. Let's wrap up with terrorism. You dealt with that in one instance when three teenage girls from an Aurora high school were apparently recruited by the Islamic State. They left Colorado, went to Germany, and were hoping to get to Syria. What did you learn from that case? In just a in just a minute, 
you know, one of the things that we uh, have to address in in when we think about violent extremism is what is inducing young people to be attracted to things like ISIS or ISIL or white supremacist sort of uh, uh, violent extremism. That Social is to say, it's media. not just abroad. No, it's not. And in fact, if you look at the history in Colorado where people have actually been hurt by violent extremism and killed in Colorado, none of it is abroad. The violent acts that have happened in the state of Colorado have been things like the the Planned Parenthood shooting in Thanksgiving of last year, the attacks, the Allen Berg murder in the 1980s of a radio show host host, um, by uh, anti-Semitic white supremacists. When we talk about violent extremism, we got to think about the whole range of what's going on out there. And we need to see what we can do not only to address it it when it arrives on our doorstep, but to prevent it by uh, looking at how young people get enticed by social media now uh, into the kind of ideology and violent rhetoric that leads to violence. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. John Walsh retired yesterday after six years as U.S. attorney for Colorado. Taking his place, at least for a little while, is a gentleman named Bob Troyer. Coming up, a prehistoric treasure trove in the suburbs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some of this state's richest archaeological sites don't look like much. Take Lamb Spring, for instance, in suburban Denver, Douglas County to be exact. You'd never guess it, zooming down Titan Parkway, but you pass a site that researchers have worked on for decades. Think of it as a prehistoric meat market. Ice Age animals once gathered at the spring, and hungry people followed. It was the place to kill and butcher meat. But much of that history remains underground. About all you can see for now is the cast of a mammoth skull, a juvenile mammoth. So we're talking like a teenager here. It's a she, and the cast of her skull is housed in a small shed on the property, where I met Nathan Boylis, president of the preserve. This was the first tantalizing glimpse that guests could see of what the remains might actually be that they're walking literally over. Boylis has high hopes for Lamb Spring, and so does state archaeologist Holly Norton, who met us. I asked Boylis to paint me a picture of this prairie a long, long time ago. If you could kind of think back about, oh, say, 10, 12,000 years ago, this place would have been more lush, more wet. The grasses would have been taller, probably about the average height of a human. And it was basically your place to eat, if you will, back in that time. You know, you're a mammoth wandering the, the plains of Colorado here. You're on the foothills of the Front Range. And all of a sudden you come across this nice big produce section, if you will. You know, <laughs> there's water, there's food, and there's relative safety too, because there's safety in, in the numbers of the other animals that are feeding here and drinking here. And we're in something of a depression, if you will, in this field. Yes. Um, looking at this mammoth skull, which was excavated when? This actually was found by the Smithsonian uh, back in the 1980s. So there were there were two excavations done by the Smithsonian, 60s and the 80s. Much of the what remains here is still buried, and the story has yet to be fully revealed. That is to say a lot of work has gone on over the decades at this site. Absolutely. But I think if you asked 10 Coloradans about Lamb Spring... 11 of them might say, I'm not sure what that is. Yep, that's, that's <laughs> pretty much uh, the case right now. And, and the evolution of Lamb Spring really is 
the hard work of local residents of Douglas County in, in particular, but a lot of professionals, I mean, nationwide, from the Smithsonian, Denver Museum of Nature and Science, uh, History Colorado, uh, a lot of people have dedicated time to slowly bring the story out of literally the earth to reveal what is actually here in the backyard of the Denver metro area. And you're right, 11 people out of 10 probably don't know about <laughs> us yet. But in This is a, on private land, we should say. Yes, it? it is. Yeah, and surrounded by private land. Entirely surrounded. So we are landlocked. And so how do you manage access of hundreds, if not thousands of people each year? I mean, as we came down the access road from Titan. Titan Parkway. Yeah. In it, Douglas County. You notice that it's a private drive. It's gated. And it's rather narrow. It can barely facilitate, you know, vehicles or with a trailer, let alone like a school bus. Because ideally, we'd love to have school kids coming down here and, and doing tours and maybe in the future even doing some excavations alongside archaeologists. So there's more to discover at this place, you're saying? Absolutely. There, there is so much more of the story that has yet to be revealed. Holly, what part of that story are you curious about? One of the things that's fascinated archaeologists about this site for decades now, really, is the potential to tell us about just the earliest people in Colorado, which is... Not the animals, but the people. Yeah, it it is a really, really interesting paleontological site. There is a lot we could learn about the animals, but I'm an archaeologist. I like the people. I want to know, you know, (laughs) what they were doing out here, how they were living, how they were interacting, uh, maybe what they thought about this mammoth whose skull is now in this great shed. Um, So yeah, it's, it's really the story about the people and who they were, how they lived here, and how they became later Coloradans. Because, of course, if the animals were gathered here to take a spell off, to have a drink of water, the people knew that's where you could get meat. Absolutely, as well as water. Do these people have a name? What do we call them? Well, uh, that's that's a good question because it's really not what you call people. It's more of a a time period, a culture, if you will, Uh at a certain point in time that is... Uh, revealed by either, you know, their, their stone tools, the technology in stone tools, the way they were hunting, the way they were interacting with the natural resources around them. So the earliest occupation that we've been able to uh, find, and not, not necessarily an occupation, but the, the hint that humans were out here is approximately 10,500 years ago. So that equates roughly with the Folsom period, or the Folsom culture, as it's known, uh, which was discovered first around Folsom, New Mexico. I mean, mm. we, we're really creative in our naming of, of certain things <laughs> like that. <Okay. laughs> but but the, these people had tools, the, the tools you found here on the site? Yes, some tools, yes. The Folsom point we found here actually is, is quite tantalizing because... The Folsom point. Point, yes. It's an actual projectile point, a spear point. So this is a, a stone point that you would mount on a spear and hopefully go and hunt, you know, whatever you needed for lunch or dinner that evening. We're standing in a field, one I've driven by countless times. Maybe you have too. It's in Douglas County. It's not far from Waterton Canyon and Roxborough State Park. This is Lamb Spring, and you might think of it as an ancient butcher shop. It's a place that animals would have come and early peoples would have come for the animals. Uh, Holly, I think of Mesa Verde, for instance, and I think of something yes. that's really visually stunning. Yes, you know, I can take absolutely. A, I can take a picture of it, and people will, will say, ooh and ah. <laughs> that's not so much the case here at Lamb Spring. How do you make this interesting, attractive? How, how do you display just how remarkable it is? Yeah, you know, it takes a little bit more imagination at a place like Lamb Spring. And, and frankly, it takes a little bit more imagination at most of our archaeological sites. Mesa Verde is 
a great example of just wonderful prehistoric architecture. But if you think about this site, it's not just about the site, but it's about the larger connection in the larger landscape. And so there were people here, there were mammoth here, there were bison here. But then when you look out along the hogback and the foothills, there were also people there. So their their friends, their family, their enemies, and it was a much larger social landscape than just this small locale with people trying to gather meat and trying to gather water. Mm. And that's what I always worry gets missed with some of these prehistoric sites is that people forget that they were complex human beings that weren't that much different than we are today. They just had to find different ways to subsist on the landscape. Mm. And that's really fascinating. Yeah, it occurs to me that we're not too far away from like some suburban grocery stores. <laughs> and in this, this was a a grocery store. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this would have been a great place. So, Nathan, tell me about the first discoveries made at this site. Not by archaeologists, but I think by a rancher. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Uh, this 35-acre parcel used to be part of a larger agricultural parcel used uh, at that time for, for cattle ranching. Okay. And so here they were hopping on a bulldozer to excavate a stock pond. And uh, they stumbled across some bones. And what they stumbled across were the mammoth bones. Bits and pieces here and there, but they knew enough to stop work and say, hey, there might be something here. And so it really started with uh, a phone call to a friend at the USGS, the Geological Survey. And uh, they came out and took a look and said, yep, you have something here. And so a couple more phone calls uh, to the Smithsonian. And then Before you know it, you know, this is early 60s, and all of a sudden you have tremendous interest, both at the Smithsonian and the USGS, that there's something here. And sure enough, excavations began, and they started opening up massive bone beds. Um, We found here on this site a minimum of at least 30 Columbian mammoths. And Columbian mammoths are the big guys. I mean, Mm -hmm. they would stand as tall as as this shed here. So taller than the mastodons that were found at, at the Snowmass Discovery. That was the big one when they were digging a reservoir. Yes. Yes. So in, in many ways, I mean, that's how archaeology and even paleontology is, is discovered. It's by accident. And it's by the interested public that says, hey, you know, what is this? And that was a rancher named Charles Lamb, I think. Correct. Yep. And the, the site bears his name. Holly, is this an active archaeological site? That is to say, will you still be unearthing things? I don't believe that there's any plans for that in the near future. This is a preserve. The current approach to this site is to protect it for the future until, you know, somebody maybe has a really, really great definitive plan for an excavation strategy or a really specific research question that they would like to answer. One of the reasons that we don't have any active excavations today is because once you bring up those bones, especially the the old mammoth bones, they're going to start disintegrating almost immediately. Mm -hmm. They come in contact with the air and the moisture here, and they're going to start crumbling. And so you need to plan well in advance and have some sort of climate-controlled curation facility ready to house those. And so that, that's our long-term vision here is to have not only the interpretive and educational center, but also an active curation facility. We seek to learn, we seek to unearth and experience and touch and feel and see, and yet there might be great benefit to just knowing something's there and leaving it a mystery and enjoying that. What do you think? Like, you no, must feel that, that tension was, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's the scientist part of me that constantly wants to have data. I want to be out in the field every day with a shovel, getting as much information as I can 
to feed my imagination about the past so I can make an informed story and an informed idea about who these people must have been and, and what they did. But you're right. I mean, there's, there's something very powerful about walking across the site or walking across any site and knowing that the remains of those people's activities are right there under your feet. And so, you know, you leave it for our children or our children's children to, to ask different questions than we can even think of and, and maybe figure it out in the future. Have people bones been found here? To my knowledge, people bones have not been found here. But would um, you imagine that there are some beneath us? That's a potential. Absolutely. Anywhere where people lived, there's the potential for human burial. Thanks to you both for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you very much, Ryan. Colorado State Archaeologist Holly Norton with Nathan Boylis, president of Lamb Spring Preserve in Douglas County, south of Denver. They are helping preserve a prehistoric butcher shop. For now, you have to make an appointment to see it. There are photos from my visit at cprnews.org. And some news to share with you. Colorado Secretary of State has announced that a minimum wage ballot measure will be on the ballot this November. The proposed constitutional amendment would boost Colorado's minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2020. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Brightly painted dumpsters, crosswalks with artistic flair, music boxes hidden in tree trunks. These public art pieces have popped up around Denver recently as part of a city program called P.S. You Are Here. New projects are selected every year. They must be outdoors. They have to reflect the community. And they are all temporary. Yes, this art disappears. And we are joined now from Denver Arts and Venues by Lisa Gedgaudis, and welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Tell us about a work in this project that has delighted you, Lisa. Yep, I think the I think the ones that are exciting people are certainly the Nikki Pike projects, the sound totems that she had um, distributed in, in three parks around the city, and certainly the you know their um, music boxes, what she calls music venues inside the cavities of trees and worked with our forestry department to place them in there. All right. And, and no tra- no trees were harmed in the making of that no, art? No, not at all this time. Okay. <laughs> and so you'll just be walking and, and all of a sudden sound is erupting from a tree? That's correct. You can kind of open a little door and out comes the sound. It's solar powered. So you're going to hear history or poetry or music from around the residents in that community. Why does that delight you? Boy, because it's that surprise, right? So you have to walk up to it and you notice something's different. And um, it helps you to walk into the park and get act- activate that park, too. So it's been exciting to see kids and families and residents kind of take ownership of those pieces. It's also something of a hiding place. I think there's something really mysterious about yeah, they are. You know, hiding <laughs> places. Um, this is part of Denver's broader cultural plan, Imagine 2020, which the city unveiled two years ago. What sets PSUR here apart from other public art projects in this city? Is it their temporary nature, do you think? I think that's the key, that their pilot program, this is a pilot program, these are temporary projects, but they're really built to inspire long-term change and develop dialogue. Even though those projects may go away, the, the conversation continues. 
But all art is meant to spark some kind of conversation, right? What's different about this conversation? This one is really based on what the communities are asking for. You know, when we run the public public art 1% program, we're coming in with these big pieces and they're there forever. And, um, you know, big it's, blue bears yes. and, and, and big blue Mustangs. horses for that matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, we're really asking the community to tell us what they need in their neighborhoods or their public amenity areas. And these could be alleyways or underpasses or their parks that are underutilized. So the idea of kind of activating space, right. if communities desire that. Are all the artists local, by the way? They are. That might be another difference between our typical public art program, which can be sometimes open nationally or internationally. This is definitely based on, again, that local community. They gather together. They decide what kind of artists they want for, for the need that, that the project asks for. And so, indeed, it's neighbors driving the, if not the art itself, what inspires the artist, exactly. I guess. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They, they gather and then they uh, they kind of, they can do a call for their own artists, but all of that becomes a very localized project. You launched this in 2014. You've had two rounds of grants. And you say a lot of these projects have become social impact projects. Yeah. One example is, is Whittier Alley Loop. Right. They Tell did us a, about it. They were one of our projects in the first year in 2014 that just got implemented last year. And it's a alleyway project that circles about two blocks and guides people to public amenities like the rec center and the library. But it really draws on the racial change that happened um, where the race street was dividing the white communities from the black communities. And they wanted to bring that up again, but in a um, more deliberate way, historical way, and celebrate those challenges and also where they are today. There is a street in Denver called Race Street. Are you That's saying correct. that was the dividing street that of was, race? Mm-hmm. Not n- named for that? Um, it might have been. <laughs> unsure. Okay. And so what did, what did that look like? It guided people around, but how did it do that artistically? Yep. They painted different um, stripes in those alleyways that just kind of kind of guided you one way or another and said where you were going. So it was really nice to be able to take that walk and walk through those neighborhoods. Hmm. PSUR here is paid for through capital improvement funding. Uh, So when the city has a construction project that exceeds a million dollars, one percent of that budget is pulled for public art. And in 2014, there was a $40,000 pool of money distributed to eight projects. Last year, that number bumped up to about $60,000 for nine projects. And I'll say that you start accepting proposals for 2016 grants tomorrow. Tomorrow, yep. If people are getting ideas about what to do in their in their own neighborhoods. And this year, we'll have 70000 to give away, and we're hoping to do about seven to ten projects. Hmm. Um, I've noticed uh, those pedestrian crosswalks. Along Colfax <laughs> Avenue. Yep, yep. Those are popping up right now. So those are being implemented. The Colfax Business Improvement Districts got together. They pooled. Um, there's three of them, and they, they got together to do their proposals. So they'll be activating East, Central, and West Colfax with crosswalks. And it's a safety project, but it's really beautiful. And the idea of closing down Colfax has certainly been an interesting one. But those are the kinds of things we walk um, in lockstep with them to, to get that kind of thing done. What do you mean closing down Colfax? Well, you got to close down Colfax to put a crosswalk across it. Yeah. <laughs> so it can get challenging. We have a great committee um, with PSU here that includes public works, community planning and development, um, parks and rec. But you say it's a safety project in part because Colfax is often crossed by people at, you know, not very visible places. Right. One of the first ones that went in was right outside of the Bluebird. So you can imagine all the people 
trying to get across the street without much much of a crosswalk or any opportunity to do that. So Yeah, the Bluebird is a theater along Colfax. Has it sparked any conversation, that art? I think they're thinking now about how we can do this across the city. And that's really what we want to get to. How, what is the toolkit to get these things done more quickly? What kind of paint should we use? What colors are allowed? Things like that. So okay. it's been exciting to build those out. The temporary nature of this work, um, I just wonder if it makes it uh, inconsequential in the long run. You know, I think back to Rome and the things that have endured, you know, and this stuff will be gone in just a few years. I think it goes back to opening up that conversation in the context. So when we have people on our team like Public Works going, well, typically we don't do this kind of thing. And we're teaching our city agencies to kind of break down those silos and learn how to say not no, but yes or yes, but and get through these projects with us. That's what's enduring in your mind. Yep. I want to read an email that CPR News received recently. David Steiner wrote, what would the world look like if Egypt, Greece, Italy, France, England and many others had not created public art? The legacy of every civilization resides in public art. Meanwhile, Christian Matthews of Fort Collins emails, public art is, quote, a misuse of taxpayer dollars, and he favors that money going towards better roads and bike lanes or improving ADA access. There are clearly differing opinions on public art. How would you address, I don't know, I suppose more someone like Christian Matthews who thinks, how many other things could that money be used for? I think when we're talking about Denver Arts and Venues, we're just lucky to have a city agency dedicated to arts and culture and the integration of that through our communities. When we did the cultural plan, Imagine 2020, we really reached out to them, didn't take a top-down approach. And the what we heard back from all of these people were, how do we get more um, integration of arts and culture into our communities? How do we? How does it become more accessible? And I think that nationally, arts and culture is now talking about arts for social change, kind of, that is the trend. It is where where we can actually meet people on the streets or have better conversations when it comes to gentrification or other things like that and development. We're seeing that a lot in Denver right now. So it's really a good confluence to have these tools in our toolkit. The The idea that art isn't over here and the rest of the city and city operations are, you know, on the other side of the table, but that Art can be driving conversations about where do you cross Colfax? Right. How do you make that safer, for instance? Right. And I guess just um, – well, I thought we don't have any time left. I, I have many questions <laughs> left for you, but Lisa, thanks. Thank you so thanks much for, for having me. Thanks for being with us. Okay, that's Lisa Gedgaudis with Denver Arts and Venues. The city starts accepting submissions, as we said, for the next round of PSU Are Here grants tomorrow. You can see photos of current and past projects at cprnews.org. And this conversation is part of a larger reporting project at CPR News focused on public art in Colorado. And if you have any story ideas for us, we'd love to have them. Email us arts at cpr.org, arts at cpr.org. Coming up, a visit to Colorado Moose Country. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Moose Festival is this weekend, Saturday, at State Forest State Park in northern Colorado. It's a really stunning part of the state. And two summers ago, I took a trip there in hopes of seeing moose in the wild. Okay, so we're walking on the trail behind the visitor center at State Forest State Park. 
And the ranger told us that the best time to see a moose is in the morning or the evening. We're here in the early afternoon, so I imagine that reduces our chances. But they've said that this trail is not a bad place to potentially spot a moose. We're in the mountains, roughly two hours west of Fort Collins, an area known as North Park. In 1995, the state legislature deemed it moose-viewing capital of Colorado. Signs along Highway 14 warn drivers to slow down for moose at night. So far, though, our hike has been mooseless. On the trail, we have seen some leavings. I'm not sure if that's from a moose or not. We're going to go to the visitor center and show the ranger a photo, see if she can recognize moose poop. Back at the visitor center, where you can buy moose clothing, moose candy, and postcards of moose traipsing through a local cemetery, I show a park employee my photographic evidence. That is moose scat. That is moose scat. You have no doubt. No doubt. The scat looks fresh, she says, so we can't have missed the moose by much. But we decide to drive to another spot in the nearby Route National Forest. First, though, lunch in Walden, Colorado. And where else would we eat but the Moose Creek Cafe? Our server, Sherry Beisel, realizes we don't live in Walden. After all, only 585 people do. And when we tell her what we're up to, she tells us about her most recent moose encounter, a prolonged one. At my house, the mama and the baby were there for two days, two nights. You camped out on your lawn? Yes, bedded down in my backyard. Beisel emailed me pictures of her visitors and showed me a video of the baby moose lapping up snow from her yard. You can see all this at CPRnews.org, where there's also a slideshow from my trip, which, after lunch, resumed. After eating at the Moose Creek Cafe and still seeing no moose anywhere near Walden, Colorado, we've driven a little further down the road, turned at Cowdery, Colorado, and we're headed towards the mountains. Maybe this will be where we see the moose. We've been on a dirt road now for several miles and just entered the Route National Forest. And there was a sign that said, Be careful. Moose in the area. Watch your shot. I guess with the idea that people are hunting deer and elk and are not allowed to shoot moose. But we're taking this as a good sign that moose are in the area. Okay, on the road, we just saw the same style poop that we saw earlier that the ranger confirmed was moose poop. We're also by this meandering stream and a lot of standing water, and moose are riparian creatures, so we're thinking the odds might be best here. We stop to hang around this idyllic spot for a while. Ducks float on the water. There are big nests in the trees, maybe hawks or eagles' nests. Still, though, no moose. But there are dark clouds gathering. It's about to pour. And given that we're on a dirt road with no cell service, we decide to call it a day. No moose for me in moose country. Oh, well, any excuse to go back to North Park, this expansive, wonderfully remote part of Colorado. Early this morning my mother said Get out of bed you sleepyhead Grab your pack it's time to go We're going to look for moose tracks Oh oh what do you say We try to find moose tracks today Oh oh what do you know We might even see a moose 
Now, if you do see a moose, keep your wits about you. They're big, they can charge. We're going to learn more about the animals from Jennifer Churchill, spokeswoman for the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Division. We spoke in 2014. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. How many moose are there in the state and what kinds are they? We have shearest moose in Colorado. And at this point, our population is about 2,300 animals. 2,300 shearest moose. Yes. S-H-I-R-A-S. Correct. Okay. And uh, are those healthy numbers? Those are very good numbers, actually. Compared to some of the national rates of moose, our moose seem to be uh, doing better and better every year, which we're really pleased with. I think we have great habitat here, and we've been really fortunate actually to see them expand from the initial population we put into North Park all the way through the spine of the state, through Middle Park and South Park as well, and out on the Grand Mesa on the West Slope. Moose, there's some question as to whether or not they're at all native to Colorado. They were certainly moved here on purpose, right? Correct. There actually has been some conversation about whether or not they were originally here. Turn-of-the-century records show that we did have people hunt a moose on occasion or see a moose on occasion, but our biologists really believe that these animals might have come down from Wyoming and then gone back. So they were stragglers. Yes. And then there was a move to move moose here. Absolutely. Our biologists looked at the habitat throughout the state and realized that we have fantastic riparian areas that could really support a moose population. So starting in 1978, we started moving uh, scores of moose down into the area and basically kept an eye on them to see how they did, uh, realized they were thriving, and we started moving them into other areas of the state that also had similar habitat. Riparian, meaning, of course, near near rivers, near yes. water, and uh, Colorado uh, has enough of that to, to keep them happy. Correct. Um, they like to be near water areas where their natural foods are, which are willows, moss, and they're vegetarians, so yeah. they like to eat anything near there, and they move through those areas quite often. Are moose hunted in Colorado today? They are, actually. Um, At this point uh, in 2012, we had 219 moose licenses available, and we had 16,500 people apply for those licenses. There's a big interest in hunting moose. Um, It's a very prized uh, and coveted kind of hunt, but it's also very tightly managed by our organization. Um, Of those 219 licenses, 185 moose were were harvested. In addition to humans, uh, do moose have other predators? Uh, Not in Colorado. That's kind of an interesting thing we're facing. Because we've reintroduced this population, uh, we do not have a natural predator for them, which would be wolves. In Wyoming, uh, where they do have a wolf population, uh, they kind of have the typical situation of wolves managing moose and vice versa. In Colorado, we don't have a natural predator. And so that's why our moose are really intolerant of dogs and people. They have no predator. They have no fear of anything that approaches them. Uh, Well, this speaks to what happened uh, recently with those women who were walking their dogs and who were attacked by a moose. Yes. How do you avoid... Uh, intimidating a moose. Yeah, I think we need to keep in mind, again, the fact that these animals have no predators means that um, they'll just stand there and look at you. Um, When we go out with our dogs off leash, that's kind of a a dicey situation because a moose sees our dogs as being wolves. And so they do not tolerate them. Yeah, if you, especially if you have a dog off leash, we've had a few situations in the last three years. We've had about five people now injured by moose when their dogs actually went running after the moose Moose came running back after the dog, and the person was right there. 
Wow. Yeah. So in what? In prime moose habitat, keep your dogs on a leash? Yes, I think that's really critical. I think in general with our wildlife, um, we really recommend people um, enjoy keeping their dogs off leash in dog parks. Um, When you're out in the wilderness, you really don't know what kind of animal you can run into, whether it's a bear or lion or now a moose. So if you keep your dog on a leash, you're going to keep your pet safe and you're going to keep yourself safe by not having any animals come running towards your dog and you'll be there Unfortunately, um, we've had injuries like this. So we really ask folks to do everything they can. So we learned that State Forest State Park is an awfully good place to see moose. Yes. Uh, maybe one other idea? Yeah, Guanella Pass, actually. Um, we've gone up there on sheep and goat counts, uh, some of the people at our agency, and we've seen moose in the morning there, which is great. Um, like I said, though, you want to keep your distance. I, the thing is, these animals are really big. They can be up to 1,500 pounds. And so you want to make sure you're keeping your distance. Um, observe them from far away. Use your binoculars. Use a nice long lens. We want people to be safe when they're recreating and enjoy these animals from a distance. Very briefly, is there a more dangerous time than others, mating season Well, yes, or absolutely. Um, with, all of, with all of the deer and elk and animals we have out there, spring and fall. Um, in the spring when they have their young and in the fall when they're breeding, they can be a little more territorial and a little more aggressive. So my, mind what you're doing. Keep your distance. That is Jennifer Churchill, spokesman for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The Moose Festival is Saturday at State Forest State Park near Walden. That's in northern Colorado. Special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher and Nancy Lofholm. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.